you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here. If you're worshiping online this morning, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us this morning. And uh, we want you to know we're in a series uh, called Old Testament Postcards. We're taking a look at the shortest of the minor prophets, and today we're in Zephaniah. Zephaniah is fourth to the end. You've got Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. has sort of a rhythm to it. So go to the very end of the Old Testament, back up four, and you're there, all right? Three small chapters. For a prophet to be recognized as a genuine prophet, his words must ring true. Here in Indiana, just up the road near Lafayette, the, about oh, a little over 200 years ago, the Battle of Tippecanoe took place. Uh, Tecumseh, the great Shawnee chief, was rallying, rallying uh, chiefs and warriors together to go up against the uh, United States Army, and he was off to the south trying to recruit some other tribes, left his brother in charge. Now, his brother was called the prophet. He got that name because he'd gone into a trance one time, and uh, coming out of that trance, presented a new religion to the uh, folks in the tribe, and somehow, I don't know where he got the information, but somehow predicted a, an eclipse, and when the eclipse took place, boy, his credibility went up way high. Well, they named the town that they built there, the village they built there, Prophet's Town. And when his brother Tecumseh left, he rallied the warriors and they went up against the U.S. Army under the command of William Henry Harrison and they got, they got tromped. And so on their way back, they retreated back to Prophet's Town and the warriors confronted the prophet and accused him of deceit because of the many deaths that had taken place among their warriors. Because before they went into battle, the prophet said, I've cast a spell on all of our warriors. None of them are going to die. And they said, you promised we weren't going to die. Many of our tribe has died. And the prophet, like any good man, then blamed his wife for messing with the curse that he had placed on the white man and, and so forth. And so, you know, not, nothing much has changed. We men are still looking for somebody to blame. But here's what happened. The prophet's status as a spokesman, as a revered leader, crumbled. Because, you see, his words didn't ring true. He said, this is what's going to happen, and it didn't happen that way. And from that point on, he was never a respected leader among the people. For a prophet to be a genuine prophet, his words must ring true. The prophet Zephaniah is not one of the more popular of the minor prophets, as I understand. His writings are oftentimes confused with the longer and more eloquent book written by Zechariah. Zephaniah, Zechariah sounds so much alike that people often get them confused. Some theologians suggest that he lacked the poetic skills of an Isaiah, the boldness of an Amos, or the imagination of a Hosea. They say he offers no deep insight into the condition of the human heart. And what's more, they say that he borrowed a lot of what he's written in his three chapters from other prophets, or at least restated the same things that they had stated before. You talk about a tough review, that's hard on the guy. Personally, I like Zephaniah. He's no Billy Graham, Andy Stanley, or Francis Chan, that's true. He's just an ordinary guy. He's good, but not particularly eloquent. He's steadfast, but he's not flashy. But here's the bottom line. Zephaniah's words are trustworthy. They ring true. What he said would happen, happened. 
which makes his words valuable for us to read. You know, another thing I, I like, I like the fact that he's an ordinary guy. And I like the fact that God takes ordinary people and uses them in his kingdom. Because all of us in this room this morning, we're all ordinary people. And if God didn't use ordinary people, we wouldn't be here. So I like Zephaniah. I like the fact that he wasn't some extraordinary, <clears throat> famous leader, that he was an ordinary guy being faithful to God. And this business of him borrowing stuff from other prophets or restating what other prophets have already said, I, I don't have any problem with that. If you think for a minute that every sermon I preach here is all generated in this brain right here, well, I've got some swampland to sell you after the service. Actually, everybody's got swampland right now, so that, but, but, <clears throat> but you get the point, all right? You get the point. We all share our ideas. We share our thoughts. We grow from the interaction with one another. And the other thing you have to understand about Zephaniah is his position in the minor prophets. Of the 12 minor prophets, they are broken down into two categories. The first nine of the minor prophets <clears throat> are prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the captives into the land of Babylon. The last three... Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi come after the 70 years of captivity and after the Israelites have come back to the land of Judah and rebuilt the temple. And so, Zephaniah being the last of the nine here, he and Habakkuk, they are contemporaries with each other. They are both bridge prophets. <clears throat> what Zephaniah says is a summary of all what the prophets have said before him with a glimpse to this new day that is coming when the next three prophets after the years of captivity rise to the challenge. So how does Zephaniah then speak to the 21st century? Well, the book breaks down into three sections. The day of the Lord is coming is section one. The second section, no nation will escape God's indictment. And section three, a bright new day shines on the horizon. If you want three words to summarize the entire book of Zephaniah, they are these. Warning, judgment, hope. That's Zephaniah in a nutshell. Warning, judgment, hope. Zephaniah also ministered along with Habakkuk during the time of Josiah, the great king. <clears throat> but he ministered a little bit earlier and prior to the spiritual revival. The picture that Zephaniah sees is an ugly one. The, the, the folks in Judah are still entrenched in their worship of pagan gods of the surrounding nation. The Canaanite god Baal, his worship centers still dot the countryside. I have never been able to figure out, never been to understand why the, when, the, when the God of gods, the God of the universe, our creator, our heavenly father, has done so much for the Israelites, how could they be led off into this idolatry so often and so plentifully? The picture is not a good one, and God is angry because for all he's done for his people, they, they ignore him, and they give the praise and the tribute to chunks of stone and carved wooden and golden idols. It, it seems absurd, doesn't it? <clears throat> I take a mallet and a chisel, take a block of stone, chisel it out, carve out an image out of that stone, then I drop my chisel on my and fall to my knees, and I worship that which I just created as being greater than I am. Does that make any sense? I mean, I just created this image, and now I'm saying this image is greater than the one who created it? 
What, what is the mystique about idolatry? Our God has created us. He deserves our worship. And somehow, God's people so oftentimes flirted with idolatry away from all of that. But folks, we do the same thing. We just do it in a more sophisticated way. For instance, we dismiss as foolish the concept of a grand designer who created this universe, which, by the way, the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize that it operates on a razor's edge. That if any one thing was just a little off, the universe wouldn't operate like it does. I mean, it is so incredibly exact. And we dismiss a designer as foolish, and then we bow at the altar of random chance. Why do we do that? <clears throat> well, I think if I concede that there's a God, who designed me, and a God who has given me his word and his commands, then I owe him the allegiance of my life and heart. But if I, can, if I can conclude that I am the product of just random accidents over the periods of millions of years, I owe no one anything except myself. You see, isn't that what idolatry is all about? It's making it easy on us. It is focusing ourselves as the center person. And it's putting anything between us and God. Something that is in front of God or before God or more important than God. And we can do that with anything in our lives. We can do that with our jobs. We can do that with our homes. We can do that with our hobbies. We can do that with our families. You name it, we can make anything an idol if it replaces God as the top priority of our life, which is then all about us. And, and think how God feels about that. Here he's done all these wonderful things, and we attribute those things to someone else. Or, on the other hand, just ignore him completely. <laughs> Imagine how your mother feels when for years she has cooked breakfast, lunch, and supper over and over and over again. You never say a word for years. You all go out to a restaurant and you brag about the meal. Or your dad takes care of the yard. He mows it and he cuts and he trims and he takes care of it. And you never say a word of thanks or you never so, show a word of appreciation, but you're always bragging on the neighbor's yard. How do you think God feels that when he does all these wonderful things for us and we simply ignore them or we give the credit to something or someone else? Listen to the opening words of Zephaniah. It gives you a glimpse into how God feels after so long a time. In verse 2 it says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. A little bit of hyperbole going on here. Exaggeration for the sake of a point. God says, when I'm done, everybody's going to know that I've been at work. These are harsh words, reminiscent of God's <clears throat> condemnation of the world at the time of Noah's flood. And as you read in Zephaniah, he doesn't just pronounce judgment on the Israelites, he pronounces judgment on, on the sins of other nations, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Assyrians. Zephaniah is an equal opportunity offender. Nobody escapes his pen. His words ring true. 
That's why he's worth reading, because what he says about these other nations comes to pass. Here's the other thing I want you to know, that, that God doesn't just care about the Israelites because they're his special people. He cares about all the people that he created, every nation, as it strays from him. Listen to what he has to say about Moab and Ammon in chapter 2, verse 10. This is what they will get, speaking of Moab and Ammon, this is what they will get in return for their pride for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land and the nations on every shore will worship him and everyone in his own land. Zephaniah says, there's coming a day when everybody will worship the Lord God Almighty. But Ammon and Moab, they're going to get it because of their pride. And they did. They're gone. Of Nineveh, he writes in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry in the desert. Assyria was one of the great nations of antiquity. Nineveh was its capital city. It was a huge metropolis according to the Bible. And God says, I will destroy it. And elsewhere, he says, I will destroy it so utterly that nobody will know where it is. 600 B.C., 600 years before the birth of Christ, the city of Nineveh was destroyed. And for centuries, theologians thought that Nineveh was a mythical place because nobody had ever found the ruins of Nineveh. It didn't seem to exist in any form or fashion. Certainly didn't exist as we find in the Bible. It wasn't until 1840 that the ancient city of Nineveh was discovered. It is located right across the river from modern-day Mosul, which is in Iraq, which you've probably heard and, and seen on the maps, on the news, and everything else. And when they discovered it, and when they began the excavation, they discovered that the ancient city of Nineveh was indeed as grand and glorious as what we find in the Scriptures. But when God destroyed it, it was so utterly destroyed that it took from 600 B.C. to 1840 before anybody ever knew where it had been. The prophet's words ring true. Now, what was it that made God so angry about all that was going on? Well, part of it was that there was religious pretense. Zephaniah begins with the religious leaders, and they said, shame on you for your hypocrisy. Don't talk the talk if you don't intend to walk the walk, is what he is saying. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, and by the way, it is a relationship, it is not a religion should permeate every aspect of our lives. What was happening with the religious leaders of that day and time was that they were doing their religious thing and then they didn't live that way in their regular life. Can, can I remind you, this is not something you do just on Sunday and then you shelve it. This is who you are. This is not something you do. This is who we are. And it should permeate every area of our life. If you cannot run your business as a Christian, you either need to change your business or change how you're living out your life in Christ. It should change your home. It should impact how you are in society. It should change your friendships. Our faith, our relationship with Jesus Christ ought to permeate every aspect of our lives. Zephaniah talked about the pretense of the religious. Then he talked about society's practice. Zephaniah addresses the changing culture and society that continued to move ever farther away from the standards that have been set by God. Have you, have you noticed a theme with the prophets over the weeks that we've been studying this? They all rally to this theme. Culture is abandoning God. Society is moving away from God. And it's not just the Israelites. It's all the nations they're talking about because God cares about us moving farther away from him. There will be a time of reckoning. Just because God doesn't act now doesn't mean that God won't act in the future. There will be a day of reckoning. <clears throat> 
He is also watching how we, his people, react to the changes of culture. You know, when our society goes through changes that take us ever farther away from the principles of God, we, we can react in about one of three ways. We can react this way. When, when our culture changes and we think it's wrong, we can say, oh, well, let's just join culture. Let's, I'll just throw up my hands. Let's acquiesce to the direction of culture. Let's just blend in with the crowd and we'll go that direction. Or we can react overreact in a negative way and we can rally and we can defame and we can do all these kinds of things which makes a divide even broader or we can act with grace speaking the truth in love but holding fast to the timeless word of God in an uncompromising way now I think that's how God wants us to deal with things when things are moving away from him continue to speak the truth but speak it in love offer it with grace but do not compromise his timeless credentials standards or his word third thing he says is greedy commerce Zephaniah railed against those whose only goal was to earn money with no thought of the needs of others around him we dare not neglect those needs either and then he talks about complacent attitudes. The indifference of the people was part of the problem. The people just didn't care. Okay, yeah, so my neighbors do it. No, that doesn't matter. Nobody cared. It was apathetic. It was indifferent. This was the problem at Corinth. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of sins that are going on in the church. But that's not what bothered Paul the most. Paul was concerned about the sin, surely. What he was most concerned about was the fact that the Christians in the church at Corinth were tolerating the sin because they were indifferent or apathetic to it. That, that is something that God does not want from us. Religiosity, societal permissiveness, greedy insensitivity, and a general malaise of complacent indifference. That's what Zephaniah is writing about. But does anybody else see the correlation here? Is it hard for anybody else to believe this was written 2,700 years ago? Does this not sound like our world? It, it is what God, it, this is why God's word is so contemporary. It is why Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's why the minor prophets still matter, because their words ring true. So what's the desired response? What does God want from us as we look at Zephaniah? Well, one of the things I so appreciate about the Minor Prophets is while they, we bring warning and impending punishment, they also preach hope and redemption. When God sounds a warning, He also brings the occasion of restoration. And how does that begin? Well, Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3 says, Seek the Lord. That's how it begins. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be scattered or sheltered, excuse me, on the day of the Lord's anger. What all is involved in this restoration? What's God's desired response from us? Very simple. Number one, be humble. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Human nature is to exalt oneself. God's nature is to humble oneself. Why is it that we have such a hard time seeing our own faults? <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm not really good at seeing my own faults. I can see yours. I, I, I just don't see mine really well. 
And, and, and I've, I've seen that that's human nature. We're just all a whole lot like that. We never see us for who we really are. At the beginning of the 20th century in New York City, there was a gangster that made the Big Apple his home. His name was Two-Gun Crowley, and he was indiscriminate in his murder. I mean, it just, he just had no, no compunction about murdering, and he was, you know, on the top of the number one wanted list. He finally had a shootout with police in New York City, uh, and they overpowered him, uh, arrested him. He was convicted, sent to Sing Sing prison, and, and you say, well, what does a man think of himself that acts that way when he gets captured? We happen to know what Two-Gun Crowley thought of himself because he wrote it out in that last gun battle in case he didn't survive. And this is what he said, quote, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm, unquote. Huh? How does he define harm? He didn't see himself for what he really was. Misunderstood? Mistreated? Ignored? I don't know what he saw, but he sure didn't see himself for what he was. We look at others with critical eyes. We look at ourselves with gracious eyes when it ought to be just the opposite. That's human nature. God wants us to look at ourselves with the critical eyes. He wants us to look with others with gracious eyes. A humble and honest look at ourselves, a gracious, humble look at others. Andrew Murray wrote, he said, do you want to enter what people call the higher life? Then go a step lower down. That's humility. Let's take a step down. But now remember, humility is never something to brag about. Hey, look how humble I am. It just kind of has a way of undoing the whole humility thing. I kind of like how Helen Nielsen put it. She said, humility is like underwear, essential but indecent if it shows. <laughs> it begins with a humble spirit. Second is a, is a repentant attitude. God calls us to change our minds and hearts so that that will lead to a change of life and behavior. It's an about face. Zephaniah 3.13 says, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. That's a total 180-degree change of description from what they were at the beginning of Zephaniah. You see, that's where God is leading us to, is to a change of our minds that leads to a change of behavior. Third thing, be helpful. The better way to point others to a better way is by treating them better. And that doesn't necessitate some huge sacrifice or change. Every one of us in this room can treat others nicer and kinder if we'll just think about it. It does not require a special talent. It does not require a degree from an accredited university. It does not require us to be an apprentice to someone who is kinder and nicer. Everybody in this room can do it if we will just be aware of the fact, if we will just take notice of every day, let's see how we can treat others better so that they will find this better way in Jesus Christ. John Ortberg writes about a, a, a 
lady who was a bus driver in one of our larger uh, metropolitan areas of California. Her name is Linda. And um, Linda is, is probably the most popular bus driver in, in that area because she genuinely cares about the people that ride her bus. Uh, Linda knows the names of her regular riders. She knows things about their family. She's always asking them about how they are, what their family's conditions are. Everything. She carries on this conversation. Uh, Linda one day pulled up to a, a bus stop for the passengers. There was an older, an elderly lady, Ivy, uh, who was struggling with two bags of groceries. She hops off the bus, takes the bags of groceries, puts them on the bus, helps Ivy up the steps, then finds her a place to seat. Ivy will not ride on any other bus but Linda's now. Tanya was a loner. One day as Tanya was getting off the bus, Linda said, Tanya, you don't have any place to go to th for Thanksgiving, do you? She said, no, I don't. She said, well, then you're coming to my house, and we're going to enjoy it with my family. And they became best friends. The people who ride Linda's bus bring her gifts. I, I've never seen a bus operate like that. And you say, well, what, what makes Linda so uniquely special? Can I tell you? Her bus route starts really early in the morning. But she gets up at 2.30 a.m. to pray for 30 minutes before she drives her bus to ask God to open up the doors so that somebody can find a better way through her kinder, nicer spirit and through that discover who Jesus Christ is. I'm not suggesting you get up at 2.30 and pray, but I am suggesting that you pray and ask God to make you kinder and nicer in a way that will help other people find Jesus Christ in you. Here's the last thing that the Zephaniah talks about, and that is be hopeful. L listen to how he ends the book. Listen to the, just the, the tenor of these words. He starts out so devastating, but listen to how he ends up. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy is when he brings the Israelites back from the time that they spent in Babylon. The the, the the inhabitants of Judea come home 70 years later. That's what he's talking about. But the ultimate fulfillment is what we find waiting for us down the road in a place that we call home as well, heaven. When life gets tough, God gives us a glimpse that there is a new day, a better day. He gives us hope. Life in a broken world is never easy, but it's not the end of the story either. This is just the first chapter, our lives in this world. When you have hope, you can keep looking forward. That's what hope's all about. It's looking forward. <laughs> I can tell you, on the days when I just am ready to pull my hair out, when I've had it up to here with the stuff that's going on in life, you know what I look for? You, you know what, I, what keeps me going? I'm looking forward to vacation. I'm looking down the road to something fun and special and unique and delightful that takes away that moment. As long as you can look forward, hope is at work in you. 
when you have nothing to look forward to, hope begins to die. Hope is looking forward. I can handle just about anything if I have hope that there is a new day down the road. Actor Steve McQueen's life was as tough as the characters he portrayed on the silver screen. Alcoholism and failed relationships brought him to an empty life. And in his despondency, he attended a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, Billy Graham wasn't even preaching. It was one of his associates. And um, he was touched by the message, made a profession of a faith, and then asked if there was a chance that he might talk to Billy Graham sometime. Well, uh, Billy Graham was on his way out west. He, he had a connecting flight in Los Angeles, but he had a layover. And so Steve McQueen picked him up in his limousine, and they had a few hours together to, to ride and talk. Steve McQueen's problem was this. He couldn't believe that the God of the universe could really love and save somebody with such a checkered past like he had. And so Dr. Graham began to give him various passages of Scripture, but nothing seemed to click. And, and then Dr. Graham opened up to Titus chapter 1, verse 2, which says, The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. The hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised from ages long ago. It just was the verse that turned him around. That's what gave him the confidence of the future. He asked Dr. Graham if he had anything he could write that down on, and Billy Graham just handed him his Bible, said, here, you just take my Bible, mark this passage, and don't forget it. Not long afterwards, Steve McQueen died in Mexico while seeking experimental treatment for his terminal cancer. It is said that when he passed from this life into the next, his Bible was on his chest, open to Titus 1, and his finger was resting on verse 2. When the bottom falls out of your life, keep looking forward. That's hope. There is a new day and it's all available to every one of us in this room through Jesus Christ.